Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 225 The End of Self Referencing. We're joined again by Harvard trained social scientist Dr. Jeffrey Martin to continue exploring the results of his current research on what he calls non symbolic consciousness. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Almost every Buddhist tradition has different maps of their own to kind of describe a process that one might go through as they're waking up or as they're moving towards what you're calling non-symbolic consciousness. Could you say from this more universal model that's based on cognitive psychology and, and based on longitudinal research, what are some of the core features of that process that you've started to see being revealed in the data? Right, that's a that's the key question. That's just the fantastic question. And it's been... I would say really mind-blowing to watch that data be collected and unfold and see just how much it really does change. So you are so right about maps. You know, our experience has been that even within narrow subsets of traditions, the experts in those narrow subsets of a tradition don't agree on their own maps. And so you've got all of these maps and you've got all of these different ideas out there involving this stuff. And we really, our process really sidestepped all of that. So, for instance, if we, when we sit down with someone for an interview, uh, usually we begin by asking them to just sort of give us a little bit of their history and tell us, you know, what brought us up to this moment where we're sitting down and talking. And we use that for a couple of things. We use it to synchronize language because everybody has different language associated with this. So, you know, we use the term non-symbolic consciousness, not necessarily because it's the best description of this, but because it's the description that we found early on in the process that was you know, not turning off research participants, potential research participants. At the very earliest part of this process, we would use a word like experience, and it would turn out that the person that we were talking to just did not like the word experience. And so they would refuse to participate in our research because they just said, you guys don't understand this, you know, I'm not going to waste my time with you. Or we would use uh, consciousness, and the person didn't like consciousness. And we were really struggling in those early days to try to figure out how to communicate. And so one day in a, in a paper from a lady named uh, Suzanne Cook-Reuter, I just sort of stumbled across this word. It was non-symbolic consciousness. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try that. The minute we started using that word, people started coming in and participating in our research. It just didn't turn anybody off. Everybody sort of thought about it for a minute. It sort of fit enough that it didn't trigger anything for them and they were willing to participate. I say that just to sort of bring out the fact that these are very touchy things, these maps and these definitions and these terms. Yes. Uh, and really no two people that I found, I don't think, really agree on them if you really, really try to get them to sit down, uh, even sort of within the same tradition and get really, really nitty gritty with it. It's very, very interesting. So we actually wound up sidestepping that. We do listen to all of those types of terms, and we do synchronize with those types of terms for communication purposes and whatnot. But really, we ask about things like thinking and memory and whatnot. And what's shaken out from that over the course of time is very huge differences 
between sort of the beginning, what we would think of as sort of the beginning parts of the process, or I would call it sort of the left side of the continuum, and sort of the more later stages. And I don't think that we have any idea if we've reached, you know, the latest stage type of people. Certainly it gets rarer. It gets a lot harder to find participants as you go from the left side of our model to the right side of our model. Uh, just not a lot of people seem to sort of make it to that right side. And on the extreme right side, you know, we've got hints of a couple of stages that we just absolutely don't have enough subjects to really accurately explore in any way. So we've got some people kind of in holding from a research perspective. So I can only really take it so far, but I can take it very far, I think, at this point. So if you're talking about the far left side of the model, and I'm asking you about the nature of your thoughts, and I'm asking you about the nature of your emotions, and I'm asking you about the nature of memory, and I'm asking you about the nature of perception. Memory is largely unchanged at that point. Thinking is significantly changed, and you'll often hear a certain subset of that population. It seems to be right around 70% of that population. Just immediately sort of come back with the idea that, well, you know, thinking has stopped for me. But that's almost never true for people who are on that side of of the continuum. And so when you really, really, really dig into it, you find out that it's not so much that thinking has stopped for those people, but that the relevance of certain types of thoughts uh, has diminished to the point where, you know, right now I'm uh, sitting here and there's all sorts of stuff going on. I'm looking out a window and there's trees blowing, but I'm really not thinking about the trees blowing. I'm thinking about, you know, this conversation and what I'm going to say next. The tree is still blowing over there. If I want to focus on the tree blowing over there, I can. And it's sort of like that with this particular class of thoughts for these folks. Uh, so they're still there. They can still be focused on if it's desirable. There often are periods for them when their thoughts do sort of draw them in. They're not completely immune to thoughts. But, you know, largely it's like the tree that's outside the window right now. I'm just not, it's there, it's blowing around, but I'm just not really paying attention to it. Uh, and that's really sort of how this one type of their thoughts have become for them. Now, that turns out to be a very major part of the thought structure. It's the part of thoughts that deals with, you know, sort of self-referential thinking. So it's the part of thought that deals with anything that has to do with thinking about yourself, basically. It doesn't impact your ability to schedule things. It doesn't impact your ability to solve math problems. Uh, it doesn't involve all of those other types of thinking. Uh, but it turns out that those other types of thinking don't occupy that much of our time. Now, what occupies a lot of our time are these other sort of self-referential type of thoughts. And so when they become irrelevant, the mind seems a lot more quiet. But if you actually dig into it and you really, you know, you ask the questions in certain ways that we've learned to ask them or whatnot, it almost always draws out this very sort of different picture of it that, no, there's thoughts. And now that for the other 30%, and these are sort of rough numbers, but they're pretty accurate numbers so far in our population. Uh, for the other 30%, their number of thoughts, they would actually say, has increased after their awakening experience or whatever you want to call it today. So their thoughts have really multiplied. But again, it's a situation where it's like the tree blowing outside the window. Even though there are more thoughts, they're still not really being affected by them. And lots of times, people haven't noticed that there's more thoughts because, you know, their sense is that things have gotten a lot quieter 
And until we sort of ask questions in certain ways and get them to dig into their heads, we spend a lot of time in these interviews, six to 12 hours, sounds like a lot of time in an interview, but we spend a lot of time sitting quietly with people because we ask them these questions that they've just never thought about before. And they actually have to sort of sit with them for a minute and then sort of figure out what the answer is for them and then come back with the answer for us. So there's a lot of, if we were to listen to our recordings of our interviews, there's a lot of pauses after these questions while people dig in. And so it's very true for this thought type of question as well, that where people, you know, have to sort of sit there, oh my gosh, you know, they're often very surprised, wow, you know, there's actually probably more thoughts of that nature now that I'm thinking about it. They also often don't think about, when they say, you know, thoughts went away, they're often also not differentiating the type of thinking, the type of thoughts that went away. So that's often also new for them. So that's an example of thinking. Now, if we go all the way to the end of the scale, if we were to deal with research participants that seem to be, if this is some sort of progressive scale, if we were to go all the way to the other end of that, at that point, really the thoughts are gone. I mean, no matter how much you try to get people to look for them, they're gone. Now, there's some different ways in how that shows up. For instance, uh, those thoughts can return here and there. Uh, there are some people that they return for early in the morning, just after waking for the first 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 5 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, there's some that it returns for if they get very sort of hypoglycemic, if they don't eat, if they are sleep deprived, uh, those thoughts can return. So there's, there appears to be an inhibitory mechanism that we're dealing with here. And by the time you reach the end of this, it's pretty darn clamped down unless the brain doesn't have what it needs to sort of function normally or function optimally. And then it's almost like that inhibition can lift a little bit. And some of the people that are in sort of the earlier parts of those later stages can have some you know, self-referential thoughts kind of bubbling back up. So that's an example of how things change. And as you might imagine, as you go across that continuum, you see what you would sort of expect in terms of a progression from one of those extremes to the other one of those extremes. And we can talk about the same sort of changes. Uh, there's changes that are very similar for emotion. At the end of the spectrum, people basically represent that they do not experience emotion ever. Now, that sounds like terrible, like it would be some automaton-type existence. But in fact, you know, no one wants to go back. You know, Whatever that's like not to experience emotion, uh, it's better than what came before it. And lots of times there was a progression into it, and what came before it was pretty darn amazing compared to what came before that. So whatever that is, to not have emotion, to be on sort of the far end there, you know, you still have a, a tremendous sense of well-being. Uh, it's just not an emotional sense of well-being. So people don't represent, for instance, having love. If you say, you know, do you have love? I say, no, I don't have any love. And that's true for even things like their kids. You know, they don't have fatherly or motherly love for their children even anymore. So it, those sorts of extreme forms of love that people maybe can't imagine not being a part of their life, uh, literally just there's no experience of them. Uh, now, when we measure their body, we, we do measure sort of the same types of physiological responses that you would measure in people that had emotion. So it's interesting because there does appear to be sort of what you would think of as a measurable emotional response in the body, but there's no experience of it. From the subjective side. From the subjective side. That's really interesting. And I was, I was going to ask because this is uh, you know, such a fascinating way of talking about a progression. And of course, you know, looking, for instance, in some of the contemplative traditions that I'm familiar with, you have descriptions of things like this. And then on the other hand, 
almost all the contemplative traditions I'm aware of, they also talk a lot about things like ethics or morality or how to kind of be in the world in a way that's uh, of benefit to other people. And so it's interesting, I think, for a lot of people that might hear something like this, that you know, thinking, for, in- for instance, is going away or emotions are going away, that in some ways I can imagine people going, wait a second, that's not good. <laughs> are they going to be able to function, you know, or be able to contribute? Or, you know, why don't they just sort of die at that point? Um, I, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I, I suspect that's a maybe a common response to that type of thing. It is, absolutely. And it very much feels to people who are just dropped into it. As I said, you don't have to start at point A and go to point Z, right? So you can start at point X, for instance. You can start at one of those no thought, no emotion. Something else that goes along with it is there's no sense of agency. There's no sense that you can do anything in the world. The world's just unfolding. There's no sense that you can make a decision. There's not only not a sense that you're not making a decision, which can happen at other places in this developmental progression, but there's literally just a palpable sense that it's just completely impossible to make a decision, completely impossible to take any action. Um, and so there's just sort of a set of things that sort of snap into place. And it does sound like that from the outside. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that when I'm sitting across the table from these individuals, as you might expect, if you're spending hours of time with someone, uh, lots of times you develop bonds with some of them, you know, you become friends over time. And they are, in every sense of the word, you know, normal I mean, they seem completely normal. You know, they laugh. They seem to have an emotional life. Uh, It's very difficult to tell from the outside. In fact, you couldn't tell at the outside. I often say that if I were to put 12 of these people in a room with 12 people I randomly picked off the street and were to just take the average person into that room and leave them in there for a few hours and pull them out after a few hours and say, hey, did anybody seem different to you? They probably wouldn't say that anybody seemed different. To them, uh, and that's really a fascinating aspect of this research is to try to figure out what's what's going on with that, with the sense inside that you're completely gone. You know that any sense of an individualized sense of self is just gone, and yet from the outside, you go to work the next day after that happens to you, and your coworkers don't notice a thing, and they're astonished. You know, most people are astonished by that. They think to themselves, "How am I going to go to work tomorrow?" Our population is very very broad. It runs from. I mean, we have some parameters on age. So it runs from 18 years old up into the late 90s at this point. And it runs across, you know, all educational levels. There are some skews. There are some ethnic skews. Uh, It's primarily white. There's a bias towards uh, men over women. And if you really dig into, instead of looking at the range, if you really sort of dig into the biases, there's also a bias towards education. For whatever reason, the people that we find, they usually have a college degree. Lots of times they have a graduate school degree. In fact, there was one trip that I took across the United... I'm constantly on the road interviewing people. I don't do that so much now. Uh, We've just sort of concluded that part of the project and we're under the neuroimaging part of the project. But there was a point which I drove across the United States seeing people, you know, every few hours for interviews. And on that entire trip, I didn't stop and see one person that didn't have a PhD, which is incredible when you think about it. You know, and I didn't find them because they were in the university system. I didn't know that they had a PhD until I sat down with them and was doing sort of background information on their education and stuff. Uh, so it's, it does tend to be a more educated sample. Uh, our sample is you know, almost entirely white, really. That's one of the reasons we're going to Asia. We're about to sort of expand this to Asia to see if you know, the data holds up in Asian populations as well. So 
when you think about this, you also think about it socioeconomically. And they really cut across very broadly the socioeconomic spectrum. So there are people with no thought, with no emotion, reporting no sense of agency, that are extraordinarily high-functioning in society, that are running very sizable organizations, that are in very senior leadership positions within governments, that are really people who are who are functioning at a level of the world that is difficult to function at in the first place. And when you asked them, when this transition occurred to you, did it make you more effective, less effective? You know, what did you notice uh, as a result of this? And I haven't had one person yet that hasn't said, oh, it made me, you know, far more effective than I was before. These were already people who were a major CEO or a major person in government or even a major, major, you know, sort of nonprofit type person. Uh, so these are people who are already just really sort of at the top of the world from a socioeconomic, you know, insider, power broker sort of thing. And so, you know, the world, I think, would have looked at them and said, this is an extremely productive individual. And yet they really related their productivity before and after this event in almost a night and day sort of way. Uh, universally, there isn't one of them that, that says this any differently. That's sort of this type of high-functioning person. Now, they were a type A person before it happened to them, and they're no longer a type A person. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, so it does sort of fundamentally change sort of that type of thing. But when I say, you know, so what is it that's actually different? You know, what is it that you find helpful about this that you didn't have going for you before? Uh, the, the one thing that everyone mentions they often feel like they're the only person who's actually in the room that's paying attention to what's going on. Hmm. And that, you know, everybody else is 30% there or 60% there or 10% there or 2% there, but that they are just 100% in that room. And they'll talk about the fact that even people who have known them for years and who have watched them in these environments, you know, just building out, you know, major organizations or whatever, and who are used to them being brilliant high-achieving people will say, you know, geez, you know, in, in recent years, I have to say the stuff that comes out of your mouth is even, it's unpredictable, but it's even more brilliant than it was before. And that's often the way they represent it feeling from the inside, you know, again, because they don't feel like they have the ability to take any action. Oftentimes they're sort of watching what's coming out of their mouth, just like everybody else in the room is watching what's coming out of their mouth. And so, they're lots of times as surprised by sort of the insights that they're offering to the board meeting or whatever it is that they're at as everybody else is. It gives them almost this witness position uh, to watch this whole other level of sort of brilliant comment and observation coming out of their mouth. And they think about why is that happening? And they come up with the answer that it's that there's just something about the nature of what's changing them in terms of their ability to just be completely there and to really be paying attention to nuances that they missed prior to that in their lives simply because they weren't, you know, so incredibly present. Yeah, you know, you would think to yourself, why go on living if you don't have thoughts, if you don't feel like you can take action? But the, the well-being is extraordinary, and there's absolutely no evidence that these people aren't, you know, able to continue on in very high-functioning roles. In fact, oftentimes they'll change roles and try to challenge themselves more and in different ways, you know, basically try to test these new capabilities. It's really kind of interesting. Hmm, interesting. I'm wondering too uh, about this phase of your research, the phase where you're going around and interviewing people in depth. Were there things as you started looking at the data, was there one thing or maybe two things in particular that surprised you? 
Sure. Well, I think it surprised me that people had no sense of agency and emotion and things like that. Those were big surprises. But I think the largest surprise for me was how inconsistent it was across the population. It's kind of one of those things where you start off with sort of a giant list of stuff, like I said earlier, and you just kind of cross them off one thing at a time. But I think in the back of your own mind, just you know, after you've talked to 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, uh, you kind of start to think to yourself, okay, after the first five or 10, you, you kind of have a list narrowed down. You think, okay, well, maybe this will be the list. Then you talk to another 10 and a whole bunch more stuff gets scratched off and then you think, okay, well, maybe this will be the list. You talk to another 10 and a whole, you know, by the time you're on your 50th, 60th, 70th person, um, what winds up happening is that your list is like three items long, you know, and you start thinking about all of the stuff that you left on the cutting room floor back there. The one thing that's common across all of these individuals and there may only be one thing that's common across all of these individuals, and that is that they all represent some sort of fundamental shift in their sense of self. And I, I guess I thought, you know, going in, especially, you know, as the initial interviews progressed and people seemed to talk about it in sort of similar ways, and before we were really good at teasing stuff out and using experiments to knock things out that people felt were true and maybe weren't necessarily true about their experience and things like that. I guess, you know, I really felt like there was going to be sort of this big generic list of what it was like to be one of these people. And at the end of that process, I was really just sort of left with only being able to say, well, it's basically, it seems to be a shift of identity. And it seems to be a shift of identity away from sort of a localizable sense of identity or self to something else. And that something else really depends completely upon where someone is at on that continuum and it depends completely on what their ideology was coming into that continuum. If they're in the early stages of the continuum, they're still generally very affected by their religious ideology or their spiritual ideology, whatever it was. If they're at the end of that, they're not talking about it at all. And in fact, there seems to be a point where you go through a transition where, especially if you have been in a spiritual tradition for a long time or religious tradition for a long time, and a lot of these traditions don't have this built in to get past. So not a lot of people get past it to those sort of what seem to be the later stages to me, especially Christianity, right? So if you're a Christian mystic, if you're a Carmelite nun or if you're whatever, if you're into contemplative prayer of some kind or something uh, and you have sort of this long tradition, well, you know, if you think about the literature in those areas, you have St. John of the Cross and stuff like that. That literature only goes so far if you hold it up to other traditions involving a transition of a sense of selfhood there's almost nothing that goes beyond that i mean unless you find maybe bernadette roberts books or something like that you don't if you're in that tradition you don't really have something that carries you beyond a certain point so usually you don't go beyond uh, a certain point and that's what it is to you you know you think you're at the end because you're at the end of your literature and that happens to just about everybody in these various spiritual traditions there was a fantastic interview that I did with a very late stage person a few months ago. And he used a phrase that I thought really resonated well with me on this. His phrase was, you get what you optimize for. And I think that that's really, really true across all of these different subjects. If they're coming at it from a certain Buddhist perspective, they get what they optimize for in that tradition. If they're coming at it from a Christian perspective, they get what they optimize for in that tradition. They get as far as that tradition knows to get them. Uh, they usually don't get beyond that tradition. If they do get beyond that tradition, they often are going through sort of a, a major crisis point because they've built up so much they don't realize it, it seems. 
they may feel completely like their sense of self is gone. You know, they may really feel like they've made that transition away from having any sense of an individualized self. But then they're in for this very sort of rude awakening that occurs if they try to go beyond the sort of endpoints of their tradition. And when that falls away, when those constructs fall away, it's a whole other invisible piece of the self that seems to fall away with it. And it's, I think really the only way to describe it is that it's traumatic for people. I mean, it's very, especially if you're coming from like a Christian tradition where you've got Christ and love and whatever else, depending on your Christian tradition, just to pick one. Uh, if you've got sort of the Christ indwelling in you and this love and this whatever else and this God is so incredibly real to you and this union with it is so incredibly real to you. I mean, imagine what happens when that stops. Imagine what happens when that falls away. And there's nothing in your experience, there's nothing in your support systems, there's nothing in the world around you that has any way to inform that. It's, it's very difficult. It's extremely traumatic for people to hit. And then you go, you know, they go through a period of adjustment and their well-being is off the charts compared to what it was before, like I said. Hmm. Uh, so there's, there's sort of surprising things like this, I think, that I found. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.